Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. My guest today is Charlie Beckett. He's the founding director of Polis, an international journalism think tank at the London School of Economics, where he's also a professor in the Department of Media and Communications. Currently, he's leading the Polis Journalism and AI Project. He was also the director of LSE's Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, which reported on the misinformation crisis in 2018. Before LSC, Charlie was an award-winning journalist at LWT, BBC, and ITN, beginning his career at the South London Press and later a program editor at Channel 4 News. In today's episode, we discuss Charlie's experience researching AI in journalism over the past five years and how he has observed the adoption and evolution of AI in the field. We also discuss the importance of AI literacy for everyone in the newsroom and how journalists can stay ahead in this ever-evolving world of AI. Hi, Charlie. Welcome to Newsroom Robots. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. Charlie, I must start off by saying that I've been a huge fan of the work being done at Journalism AI and really helping advance AI literacy in the news industry with, I remember the Journalism AI Fellowship that came about last year that brought together newsrooms across the world to innovate products. And earlier this year, I was a huge fan of the Journalism AI Discovery email course that was launched. And it's really been clear that there's an increasing interest in this space with all of the buzz that has been coming about recently. 
but you've been in the space researching the use of AI in journalism for over five years now and have really been able to witness a truly fascinating period of growth and innovation. And so I want to start things off by getting your insights and start off by getting your perspectives on how the adoption and evolution of AI and journalism has changed over the years. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's been a fascinating period for me. I'm um, quite a, an old professor. But before that, before being working at the LSE for 15 years, I was a journalist for 25 years. And in my whole working life, I've seen endless technological change in the news media. And of course, that's accelerated in the last 15 years that I've been running this international journalism think tank, Polis, which has been interested in all sorts of different things. But the key interest is has been media change. And the you know we've seen these waves of media change recently. You know, about 20 odd years ago, we all went online because somebody invented the internet and the World Wide Web. And then we had social media coming along more recently, but that's become part of the fabric of our, our world. And in a way, I see these collection of technologies, you know, art that we put under the umbrella of artificial intelligence as the next kind of wave. Some of them have been around for quite some time. If you think that it's machine learning, it's data. Well, that's not new. What is new, I think, is these programs where the technology can do the tasks like a human. You know, it's taking over much human journalistic labor. And when we started this project five years ago, and we started it with a global survey because we're totally international, we wanted to see what was going on. And the answer was some really interesting stuff, but very little. And there were huge kind of disparities between different media organizations and, of course, different countries because this was new technology and it was only just starting to have an impact in journalism. So it's been very exciting. As you say, we've built all sorts of programs and projects and resources and activities that we can talk about, perhaps. And then, bang, this year, my God, <laughs> suddenly, you know, everyone's been very enthusiastic. I've been, you know, fascinated. But then today... It's been a kind of firework show of publicity, hasn't it, over the last, since perhaps November, because of what we call generative AI, you know, all that chat, GDP, mid-journey, DALI, all that stuff, which in many ways has been a spectacular PR boost for AI in all fields, not just journalism, of course. But I think the key to it has been that everyone can now try it. We can all go on to chat, GDP, slam in a prompt and see what happens. So I think that's been the game-changing effect of this last phase. Yeah, and as you were saying, AI has become more accessible, but also at the same time, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how important is it for everyone in the newsroom to be AI literate, or at least knowledgeable about AI and its applications. Because predominantly in the newsrooms, I feel like it's been the product and tech teams and executives thinking about AI strategy. But now should all journalists be like need to be familiar with AI tools and think about how they can incorporate this into their work? Yeah, I mean, just look at uh, what happened in the past. You know, I do remember a journalist telling me when the internet came along, well, I'm not going to bother with it. And I remember when, when the social media came along, people said, well, it's nothing to do with me, you know. And the lesson was, well, it will be partly because you are going to be using it, secondly, because your news organization is going to be using it, and thirdly, because the world that you're going to be reporting on is increasingly going to be driven by these technologies and by those tech companies. 
So whether you're reporting on sport, health, security, it pays to know something about these technologies. And that was very much the way we saw it. You're absolutely right that it, you don't leave this to the IT people. Don't leave this to the product development team. You need to inform the process, especially, you know, if you have take pride in your journalism, then this is for you, partly because it could make your journalism better, but you want to make sure that, you know, the things you appreciate about your news organization are enhanced, not diminished by these technologies. Yeah, and when I'm talking to other journalists right now about AI, one of the biggest concerns that they're having is it's all advancing too quickly. Like, how do you keep up with what's happening in the industry and AI and all these tools that are coming about and how to use them? It's just all happening too fast. And that's what I'm hearing. So, like, how do we keep up, kind of keep on top of all of this and stay ahead and kind of differentiate from what is just a hype? Well, how do you think I feel? I mean, you know, we have, <laughs> we're not a very big institute. We're a handful of people. And the, the secret is, firstly, I would say don't panic. You do not need to know everything about everything to do with AI. I think you need to put your toe in the water. I think you need to get some very basic knowledge just to start with. And I would say, yes, don't rush in, partly because this technology is changing so quickly. So many products are coming along, so many advances in it, that there's no harm in taking a breath, being a bit cautious, being a bit discriminating about you know, how you're going to get involved. I mean, you know, the way we structured our resources at uh, the Journalism AI project is we've deliberately made it so that you can come in at a very low level, which is where I started. <laughs> I haven't got much higher, actually, but you can come in at a very low level and just, you know, what the hell is machine learning? You know, just give me a, a one-hour introductory course. We can do that for you for free. Or we've got this Journalism AI starter pack well, you can go in at one level or you may have a particular interest. Is it investigative journalism? Is it that you're interested in revenue raising, for example? And you can go in at different levels and with different interests and explore and getting connected to all sorts of resources. And this is the key thing. I think networking and collaboration is always good, but especially around this. You know, you mentioned we're doing these fellowships. They're kind of teams of people from different news organizations exploring, experimenting with uh, AI and journalism, and they really benefit. There are so many shortcuts you can get by asking somebody else, by benefiting from somebody else's experience. And again, that's why on our website, there's tons and tons of reports, guidelines, you know, prototypes from other people who have played around with this stuff and are continuing to do so. Uh, so you can learn from them. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So I, I know it's daunting. But, you know, I think we should concentrate, well, it depends on your role, doesn't it? But any journalist can find something to try out, to experiment at a kind of low, low level, just to start to get a feel for it in the same way we did, you know, when the whole digital thing came along. You know, we got used to editing online, for example, and, you know, it was great. <laughs> it was so much better than, you know, I remember editing with film and video and weird stuff like that. And it got so much better once you learned these, these new skills. So I think that is the way to see it. Don't get hooked up about, is it sentient or is it a robot? You know, and I'm very cross that you, you're using the robot word in your podcast. But <laughs> I think that, that, that those things are so misleading. Is it going to take your job? It might do. If your job is creating really boring, repetitive journalism, then it probably will take your job, actually. 
But generally speaking, we've seen that it's used much more to augment and support the journalist. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You're going to have to learn new skills probably. You know, you might end up having to do more different tasks, you know, but are you hoping that it that it will enable you to focus on the, the stuff that you are good at as a human journalist? I kind of want to delve more into your work over at LSC and the Journalism AI Fellowship Program. Like, I really liked how it was structured with, like, you have one person from editorial and one person from tech working together in teams. And do you see that as kind of a model for building AI-driven products in the newsroom? Because I'm also, like, thinking about smaller news publishers who might mainly be focusing on editorial. Your tech is outsourced. You're just having plugins in a completely off-the-shelf CMS. How would small news publishers look at implementing AI in their newsroom when they don't really have the resources like bigger publishers to go out and build tech-specific to their newsrooms? No, exactly. And I should say that all the sort of programs we've created have been kind of organically, they've risen organically. You know, we started off with a survey report. People said, oh, we need some basic courses. So we built those. Then people said, hang on, what about, just like you said, what about small newsrooms? We're in a small newsroom. How can you help us with that? So we said, okay, we're going to build this free online course directly aimed. It's called the AI Academy for Small Newsrooms. <laughs> and again, we've been working with incredibly fascinating smaller newsrooms around the world. And they're really interesting because they're so creative. And they're often very savvy around tech. They just don't have the scale. They don't have an R&D department or a product development team uh, who can look after all these things. So we're trying to find ways forward for them. And as you say, we've got the, the collaborative fellowship. And again, that arose not spontaneously, but organically. We said one year, three years ago, we said, does anybody want to collaborate with some other people looking at AI related issues in journalism? And a bunch of people said, yeah, I want to do this. I want to look at bias correction or I want to look at automating archive. And we put people together purely by their interests. And that meant you did have really interesting people within a news organization, you know, the editorial reporter who wants to use AI to do an investigation with a data scientist, perhaps, who's really fascinated trying to, you know, search through documents and you put them together. But you also put them, people together from different news organizations and different countries and even different continents. So last year, you know, we had um, the Guardian newspaper, which is a, you know, obviously a global, international quality news organization, working with a very small Mexican investigative data investigative uh, journalism organization, tiny one, really. And they both had, they had complementary skills and they had a great conversation and they came up with some really interesting ideas. So, you know, that has been absolutely key. I think it... One of the fascinating things, again, I didn't expect this, it was an unexpected consequence of this program, was the way that it's changing career paths and the way that it's changing attitudes to production, if you like, and innovation. In the past, journalism has always been very insular, very competitive, independent, isolated, often for very good reasons. But I think the computer science, data science, techie people... They come from a more of an open source, collaborative, you know, hackathon type culture where you try and sh share great ideas to save time. And there's been a wonderful blend there and really fascinating looking at some of the careers. We did a, a series on our blog of looking at women in journalism AI. And you think, yeah, women in tech, not traditionally easy, but something around journalism and AI, there are some absolutely brilliant people 
who happen not to be men, who have created really, really interesting career paths. And yeah, we try and be a space, you know, we try and be a space where people can come perhaps kind of out of their newsroom. They don't literally come to us in London. All that we do is done remotely and online. You know, it'd be impossible to do such a global project physically in one space. And again, that's kind of facilitated the collaboration. And we bring in mentors. You know, we do, we have partners at universities like Northwestern in the States who work with us. Uh, We have other people in the industry, you know, technologists and academics and experts who help by being tutors and mentors to all these projects. And again, it's, it's just a fantastic way to get insights and to accelerate your learning. And then there's that feedback loop, because of course, all the stuff that people are creating and learning feeds back into this network of how many, about more than 6,000 people at the moment, for example, are subscribed to our newsletter. So, and they are incredible. When we did, you mentioned the discovery email course we launched this January. We had in the, in the initial application, it was something like over a thousand people from over 100 countries. And I thought, okay, right. <laughs> this technology is global. You know, we often talk to everybody about global. We often just mean America, Europe, and perhaps South Africa or perhaps Japan. But yeah, this has uh, really spread. Yeah, 100 countries. That's AI is everywhere across. It's, it's a global phenomenon. Yeah, not evenly distributed, as they say, but but it is it is everywhere. And um, we don't have a particular bias. But for example, I have a colleague working in Bangalore, Lakshmi Sividas, who is based in Bangalore. So we're quite strong in India, which you're probably fully aware is a hugely important tech place, hugely important journalism place, partly because, you know, they have a government which doesn't particularly like independent journalism. So we're hoping that AI helps to empower independent journalism. Yeah, and how do you see that connection really happening? Like, how is AI going to be empowering that independent journalism? Well, simply because we know the pressures on journalism at the moment, in a way, have got nothing to do with tech at one level. It's about the business model problem. It's about political constraint, you know, authoritarian regimes around the world. We can see press freedom diminishing everywhere, and that's not that's not good. And then there's a lot of pressure from, you know, corporate pressure, people, and of course, you know, misinformation and disinformation and so on. So in most of the rest of the world, it's not easy being a journalist. So anything we can do with the technology to empower them uh, is useful. I mean, if you think of a huge organization like Bloomberg, this technology is absolutely central to their business, and it makes their production fantastically efficient. But then think about a small organization, perhaps has got 10, 20 people. Now, if this technology can somehow save the labor of one or two people, well, suddenly they get 20% more effective. And that could be the difference between them disappearing or and then finding the kind of services that are going to sustain them. So we don't, when we take an ethical stance towards the technology, we're very concerned about the risks that it brings. And we're also very ethically concerned about the idea of, you know, good journalism. But we don't, we don't dictate what people do with this. And it can be so diverse. It could be to boost, to reduce your subscription churn, something very nitty and gritty, but essential. Because if you don't get that revenue, you can't do your good journalism. Or it might be something much more ambitious uh, like we had one looking last year, looking at trying to automate the claims that politicians make, a kind of fact-checking, sophisticated fact-checking. Could you use it to automate that? So there's an incredible range of things you can do. 
And I was looking at a research survey that Journalism AI had published back in 2019, where you looked at how newsrooms were using AI and surveyed how many newsrooms had an AI strategy, which at that time, it was about a third of the newsrooms surveyed had one. And I think if you survey them today, it's going to be way higher, hopefully. But I've kind of been likening AI to social media. And as you were saying about the social media wave, where every newsroom needs to have an AI strategy going in now, or be looking at it at least. So I'm kind of wondering what a successful AI strategy entails. Like, what are the main components that newsroom executives should be paying attention to when they're thinking about the future of their newsrooms with AI in it? Well, I think every strategy depends on what your goals are. That's the first thing to say, is that there isn't a template that you can just drop on any organization. And that's the way forward. That's the route map. Is it different for AI to, for example, having a strategy about anything, you know, about your product, about your audience, or perhaps about part, you know, tech, and tech and social media? In some ways, it's not. You've got choices. Just say with social media, you can have a very detailed set of guidelines and tactics around training and the use of social media. Or you might say, you know, well, we're not going to use it. Our strategy is not to use social media. I mean, NPR have just pulled out of Twitter, haven't they? But if you are going to do it, I think what's, what's difficult about it, and I make no bones about this, is it's complex. And even small organizations, though, can have a strategy. A strategy doesn't have to take you a year to make. You don't have 20 people on a committee doing it. You just have to think carefully before you act, and you try to plan ahead. And I think that's important for these technologies for a number of reasons, but mainly because, as I keep saying, it will impact on all the different parts, or it can impact on all the different parts of your news organization's process. It can impact on the news gathering, on the news creation, on the news distribution, on the revenue gathering. All those different parts can be affected. So if, for example, you know, you decide to automate personalized newsletters, well, you ought to be talking to the marketing department about that as well, because that's one of the services where you're seeking to gain revenue. So you ought to be making sure the marketing department talk with the tech department, but also the editorial department, editorial department because they're going to be filling those newsletters. So it's quite a holistic process. So we basically say, look, you know, we've got loads of material online where we set out kind of simple strategy steps. And the first one is kind of generic, really, which is get to know the technology first. Don't just blunder in waving wads of dollars at people who come knocking on your door promising, you know, gifts and silver bullets and things. Get yourself acquainted. Think about the people in your organization who need to take responsibility and be involved in this process, however tangentially. Think about whether you've got people with the skills who can you know, have a role in this. And then approach it by thinking, well, what are the problems? With Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We're trying to solve. What are the opportunities that we're trying to target with these technologies? Am I just chasing this bright, shiny thing because I, I heard a competitor's got it? or I saw it on the news and it really looks groovy, or is there actually a role for this in our news organisation? And then it's the usual things about making sure that you best to start small, always you know, review what you've been doing, make sure you've got the humans in the loop, and then review the results further down the line. And generally, you know, these there will be, for individual journalists, there will be kind of plug-in-and-play stuff. You already do it. You probably use transcription services or translation services, for example, as a journalist. You may have uh, personalised your search so that you're monitoring sources, for example. So the individual, I think, for individual journalists, I think that is going to be something they can adopt today. You know, you can start using these things. You probably are using these things already. But the more systemic processes in a newsroom, they need to be more strategically thought out and, you know, going to the ethical piece, you do need to say, well, look, let's make a choice here. Are we going to use this uh, to create, you know, clickbait? Or are we going to use it to try and enhance the quality of what we're doing? And in that sense, it's the same old managerial decisions you always have had. You know, how is it going to affect the quality of our product? What is our product? What's our place in the marketplace itself? and how will this technology fit in. And you can learn so much, from, as I say, from what other people are doing. There's a very good organisation called Partnership in AI that has produced a whole kind of table on their website where you can go and see which organisations have used which tools for which functions and, you know, how well they've done. Really helpful, granular, practical advice. So there's loads of resources to help you on this journey. Yeah, on that note, I'm kind of curious about how should we be thinking about the risks of using AI when developing the strategies? Like, how would you advise someone to kind of strike a balance between adopting AI but still being mindful of its risks and potential limitations? Well, I think there are kind of three types of risk, really. One is the big one, which is around AI in general. And this applies to any industry that decides to use this technology especially the generative AI, which is it raises all sorts of big questions about discrimination and bias within the programs themselves. Are they reliable? Are they, you know, are they going to perpetuate uh, injustices, for example, or other flaws? We know about, you know, the, the racial bias of facial recognition, for example, when it's used in security. So there's that big stuff, and that applies to journalism as well. And that's inherent in the technology. And all technologies have some kind of inherent uh, bias and potential risks. Then there's the ones that apply to journalism particularly, which is things like inaccuracy, possible defamation. You know, we've seen with the chat GDP, it says crazy things about people because it's so desperately trying to come up with an answer. So we can see there's some very specific risks there are for journalism itself. 
And then there are the kind of journalism as an industry risks. So, for example, risks around transparency. You know, do you understand the technology you're using? What about the relationship you have with the tech companies? Are you confident about issues around IP, around copyright, around the data sets that are being used? So those are the more kind of, if you like, strategic structural problems that the industry has to face, especially in relation to, to the tech companies themselves. So there's loads of risk, and some of them are kind of unprecedented, you know, like this idea of large language models. I think that that, in a sense, is an incremental change in terms of technological breakthrough, but in terms of cumulative effect and implications, that could be, you know, really interesting and serious. So I think there are definite risks, which is, you know, all the newsroom, newsrooms I talk to are looking hard at this, they're experimenting with this, but only the more foolhardy ones are allowing it to create content, for example, in an unfettered way. It's very much a transitional phase, and every month, there's a new iteration, isn't there, of chat GDP, for example. So in that sense, it pays, get across it, get knowledgeable about it, but don't dismiss it just because you managed to make it say something cranky. Well, well done. You, you know, you've probably got it to do something it's not designed to do. Very good. Don't use it like that then. Great. But don't just give up on it because I see a thousand potential uses and I see even more thousands of companies, some of them slightly what's the word there is snake oil involved with some of this or at least something illusory about some of the products being offered but i think that will improve and i'm already hearing about really interesting uh, applications either built in-house by news organizations or you know built by for example intermediary startups and so on and of course you know the big tech giants themselves yeah, and talking about tech giants, I want to talk about search engines specifically. We've kind of had this beneficial relationship with them so far, at least where we would have traffic being driven towards publisher websites. But now with like Microsoft Bing's chatbot, Google Bard, we're kind of seeing chatbots becoming like the new thing and it's becoming the future where like I was talking to a journalist yesterday and we were kind of nerding out about how search engines could impact publishers and how they're going to take away traffic from publishers and he was like yeah what if instead of going to Wirecutter and finding out what would be the best office chairs I just type that on Bing and we actually did that and it just popped up with the top five best chairs according to Wirecutter and took us directly there. It answered our question right then and there. Did it link to Wirecutter? And yeah, it, it did link out to Wirecutter. And like it told me exactly what the Wirecutter staff had said about it. These are the features that they really like. And we didn't really feel like we needed to go on to Wirecutter at that moment, especially for someone who was casually browsing. You got the basic information for us to start out the search right then and there from Bing's answer. So like that really got me thinking and curious to know about how are you seeing and like how are newsrooms going to be preparing for that search engine traffic, even though I must say Microsoft and Google have repeatedly said that they are focusing on driving traffic to publishers through those chatbots. But like, how should we be thinking about this? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's an incredibly crunchy situation. And in a sense, we've been here before, as you said. Facebook pushed news organizations up their algorithm. Then it decided, oh, I don't, we're not interested in news anymore. So suddenly all those businesses who had built their business on Facebook video 
suddenly had their legs kicked away from underneath them with pretty little warning, to be honest. Similar issues, as you know, around Google, you know, and whether they, and with, and the Google snippets, for example, was that taking away, you know, customer attention that could have gone back to the website. So I think there is a huge amount of negotiation to be had here. I think the downside for news is something that we've already been aware of, which is you can't copyright news in the sense of if a bomb goes off or a president's elected, just because you're reporting on it doesn't mean you own it. So in that sense, especially with structured news where it's been atomized into this data that can then be put onto chat GDP and you can say, well, who got elected? Who won the presidential election? Ping, there it will come up with all the facts because the facts themselves you can't copyright them as such. That, I think, is going to meet huge pressure on news organisations that do that kind of routine commodity journalism. I think it means that those organisations that have gone for paywalls and subscriptions and memberships and so on are going to benefit more because, at least theoretically, they're able to put some moat around their content, although that's a, a technical issue, we're not sure. And I think it means, if you look at I me, mean, Wirecutter is a great example, that you could do product reviews purely by, you know, Google reviews, couldn't you? This one's got five stars, this one's got three stars. The great thing about Wirecutter is it doesn't just do that. It's got really expert people who really pay attention to a product, and they think of it from a human point of view. Yes, that's got loads of groovy applications, but I found it really difficult to use. So that it's human judgment, human analysis, and their experience of looking at products over time. Now, you can use algorithms, you can train them to try and copy that degree, uh, but much better to, get, to have it, you know, from Wirecutter. That's why Wirecutter is so such a popular product, the New York Times. So in that sense, if you can protect that human value, then you will still survive. But you're quite right. The way this works in practice is going to be interesting. And I think in that sense, there's going to have to be a combination of the kind of European regulatory approach, which is much more about content and how the public benefits from a media environment, and the American approach, which is more around antitrust, more around having a competitive free market. And I think in this, there's a kind of a mixture going on. I mean, one media executive I spoke to in New York recently from a very big media organization said, well, funnily enough, he said, and he was speculating, this wasn't their policy, he was speculating, he was saying, well, if there's lots of different chat GDPs and they're all competing for authority and attention, then perhaps you can do a deal with them. You can say, okay, you can use our database if you pay us a load of money, for example, or, you know, you can license us, or you can do us a deal where you will make sure that you link back and in return, we'll give you more reliable, better data so that you don't come up with these hallucinations and nonsense. So, you know, we've seen in the last few years how it's a basically a dogfight. And in some places like Australia, you know, the publishers have managed to screw some money out of the tech companies in the short term. But longer term, it is a power struggle. Yeah. And just as you're saying, it seems like it's really the quality of content that we produce that's going to be more important than ever. But this has also got me thinking about, like, in terms of, like, the business model of publishers with the current stage of AI, like, is there going to be an impact on the way we think about generating revenue as well? Like, are we going to be, I don't know, like, producing chat GPT plugins and chatbots? Because I feel like also the nature of how people are going to get information is changing 
they would expect to just type a question and have that answer straight away right there. And just as I said, like according to Wirecutter, what are the best office chairs? And it straight away tells me what the best office chairs are according to them instead of having to go through it and read an entire article and then it shows up, you know. Are people going to be like expecting to get the answer right then and there? And how do you see business models kind of beginning to evolve as a result? Well, I think partly it's going to accelerate or perpetuate certain trends that are already happening. Uh, one of them is the, the sort of bifurcation. News organizations getting bigger and they're getting smaller. So we're getting consolidation at the top. The New York Times is the classic example, but it's happening in most marketplaces because they've got the scale to provide enough products and services to justify a big subscription and they can keep up with the tech as well and benefit from the scale and different affordances of the technology. At the same time, they're getting a kind of blossoming of a much smaller news organization. Some of them hyper-local, some of them niche, some of them not so small, you know, 50, 70, 100 people, and some of them tiny, could be single people who are creating news products, news organizations, news services. So I think this AI will kind of accelerate that, that bifurcation. And it will also, I think, impact on another big trend that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, which is uh, news organizations are doing less and they're doing more. And what I mean by that is they are not trying to cover the, all the waterfronts. You know, they're not trying to report on every single country in the world on every single topic. They are trying to do more vertical. The better ones especially are trying to do deeper digs, better coverage, more context, more analysis, also more human stuff about particular issues, particular stories. And they could be ones that are more attractive to their audience, or it could be just, you know, that's their specialism. And I think there's partly a reflection, at the same time, you have to do everything for everybody. And in this sense, the AI can help you because none of us are the same person all the time. You know, sometimes you are interested in, you know, technology. Sometimes you're interested in whatever, cookery. Sometimes I'm interested in football. Sometimes I'm interested in ancient history. Now, you know, it's difficult to please me all the time. Sometimes I'm interested in the morning, for example, in short bits of news that just tell me what's going on. Brief me, brief me, brief me. Give me some headlines, as it were. And then in the evening, give me something reflective and thoughtful and chewy and analytical, perhaps a podcast, say. So, you know, news organisations can use the tech to try and understand that variability that they have to have. And I also think they can use the tech to do that deepening on the verticals. You can use the tech to surface background information, context, different sources, different angles, different perspectives on a particular topic that enables you to do better, do better journalism, rather than that old idea of, you know, when I was at the BBC, for example, we would say, we've got to cover this. That you've got to cover everything. We've got to mark this. We wouldn't do much about it, but we felt we had to because the BBC was, and is still, a kind of universal broadcaster. That's very unusual. And most news organisations are no longer that. So these are the interesting trends, and it's all about structured news. It's all about the idea that within the newsroom, and this is a kind of an invisible change, the public could see when news organisations went online, well, they've got a website. They could see... When, when you went onto social media, oh, my favorite newspaper is on Twitter or Instagram. That's nice. You know, that's changing things. They won't see a lot of this stuff because it will be about reformatting and repackaging and information flows that will be 
within the news process, you know, and some of it will be automated. You know, they'll be getting content that was not seen by human hand. It was not created by human hand, at least. It may have been edited by it. And so, you know, we're going to get, this is the, you know, the kind of internet of things, you know, we're already getting our news on so many different platforms and from so many different devices. I think that's going to increase. And again, the AI facilitates that through synthetic media. So you won't notice it as a consumer necessarily. You may notice it occasionally, you know, if you're, um, who's the channel that decided to use uh, Kuwait News? They decided to use the, the virtual news reader. Well, you, 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 you can spot that. You can see that. I'm not sure that's the best use of, of the technology, but generally speaking, it's going to be under, under the hood, if you like. Yeah, and since you've kind of been a part of this AI conversation for the past five years, I kind of want to wrap things up by getting your insights into how do you see the evolution of the news industry and what do you see the newsroom of the future would look like with AI playing an increasing role in it? Yeah, <laughs> I did write a book back in 2008, which was sort of, hey, this is the way journalism is going to change. And it went out of date within a couple of years because it, the change happened so rapidly. Luckily, most of the predictions were quite uh, accurate. You know, they were very accurate, but they, it just happened so quickly. So that's what one lesson I've learned, which is that any predictions you make will probably happen quicker. I mean, I'm literally having a conversation yesterday with a news organization, quite a serious one in the UK, that's come up with a really clever way of uh, using or potentially using some of these new generative AI. And it sort of gave me the impression you're going to have this, and I suppose I'm going to fall prey to your robot metaphor here, but you're going to have this kind of super wired journalist who's got all these incredible things to assist them, all these plugins that are helping to make them do their work faster and more effectively. And at the same time, they're going to be plugged into a newsroom or a news organization, which is also intensely networked with a lot of the boring decision-making taken over by systems, connecting people even more closely to the consumer, to the audience. And, you know, that's um, the key thing, the key challenge for journalism at the moment. It's not necessarily what you do with AI. The key challenge is the public lives in a world of an overabundance of information and an overabundance of bad information. And they have a lack of time and often a lack of resource or literacy to be able to access what they want. It, the biggest challenge for journalism right now is to optimize the connection between the citizen and good journalism. Sounds really simple, but we're creating an enormous amount of fantastic journalism and it's not connecting well. So that is my, that's my wish. It's not my prediction. I think times are tough and uh, things are going to change. And frankly, I do not know where we're going to be. Uh, it's five years since we started this program. And, you know, I could write a blog. Perhaps I ought to. I'm too much of a coward about where I think we're going to be in five years' time. But it's been a roller coaster ride. And um, I just hope that the great thing about this is that we care. Podcasts like yours show that people are paying attention within the industry and with outside of the industry. People realize that this matters and that we should, you know, think responsibly and make others act responsibly too. 
Well, great insights there, Charlie. We need to act responsibly with AI in a very crucial and experimental phase with AI in the newsrooms. And well, I feel like I can keep this conversation going for a really long time and keep talking to you because there's just been some incredible insights here about using AI in journalism. But just before you wrap up, I want to let our listeners know how they can learn more about journalism, AI and the work that you're doing there. Well, we are completely open. We're completely free. I should say, actually, just full disclosure, we are. This particular project is sponsored by, of course, the Google News Initiative. So it's the tech guys sponsoring us. But we're completely independent. We're, we're the LSE. But we've got this huge network. You can uh, sign up for our newsletter. You can apply for any of these courses. You know, we've got the email course. We've got the online courses. We've got the academy for small, small newsrooms. We've got the fellowship for people who are a bit more expert, if you like. And we're always happy to talk. I've got a team based in Europe, based in India, and myself based in the UK. We've got partners around the world. We've got friends around the world. So please just join us, whether you're a student, uh, whether you're a researcher, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a technologist, or whether you're just an interested civilian. We would love to hear from you. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. There's a lot of support at Journalism AI. And thank you so much for what you're doing to help us here in the newsrooms. And thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a lovely conversation. Thanks. That was Charlie Beckett, the Polish Journalism and AI Project Director at the London School of Economics. To learn more about our guest and work at Journalism AI, visit newsroomrobots.com. If you like what's here on the podcast, please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nikita Roy and thank you for listening to Newsroom Robots.